The power of images, response and repression. People are sexually aroused by pictures and sculptures. They break pictures and sculptures. They mutilate them, kiss them, cry before them, and go on journeys to them. They are calmed by them, stirred by them, and incited to revolt. They give thanks by means of them, expect to be elevated by them, and are moved to the highest levels of empathy and fear. They have always responded in these ways. They still do. They do so in societies we call primitive and in modern societies, in East and West, in Africa, America, Asia, and Europe. These are the kinds of response that form the subject of this book, not the intellectual constructions of critic and scholar or the literate sensitivity of the generally cultured. My concern is with those responses that are subject to repression because they are too embarrassing, too blatant, too rude, and too uncultured, because they make us aware of our kinship with the unlettered, the coarse, the primitive, the undeveloped, and because they have psychological roots that we prefer not to acknowledge. When we read in one Italian writer of 1584 that a painting will cause the beholder to wonder when it wondereth to desire a beautiful young woman for his wife when he seeth her painted naked, to have a fellow feeling when it is afflicted, to have an appetite when he seeth it eating of dainties, to fall asleep at the sight of a sweet sleeping picture, to be moved and wax furious when he beholdeth a battle most lively described, and to be stirred with disdain and wrath at the sight of shameful and dishonest actions. Or, in another of 1587, that since the eye is the most perfect among the exterior senses, it moves the minds to hatred, love, and fear more than all the other senses. And when the beholders see very grave tortures present and apparently real, they are moved to true piety and thereby drawn to devotion and reverence, all of which are remedies and excellent means for their salvation. Two chief questions arise. Are these both no more than the commonplace repetition of the old idea of the greater susceptibility of the eyes than the other senses? And are they simply to be seen in the context of late 16th century Italian art theory? Let us begin with some improbable examples. The charming third century Greek romance by Heliodorus known as the Ethiopian tale about Theogenes and Charicleia has the following account of the birth of its protagonist, Charicleia. Her mother, Persina, who is queen of Ethiopia, writes to her about the palace bedroom, which was garnished with pictures containing the loves of Perseus and Andromeda. After Hydaspes had been married to me ten years, and we had never a child, we happened to rest after midday in the summer, at which time your father had to do with me, and I by and by perceived myself with child. All the time after, until I was delivered, was kept holy, and sacrifices of thanksgiving were offered to the gods, 
for that the king hoped to have one now to succeed him in his kingdom. But thou wert born white, which color is strange among the Ethiopians. I knew the reason, because while my husband had to do with me, I looked upon the picture of Andromeda naked, and so by mishap engendered presently a thing like to her. A similar role is ascribed to pictures in another quite different context. In the course of an argument about divine creation in his polemic against the Emperor Julian, St. Augustine cites the medical writer Serranos, who tells of the tyrant Dionysius, who, because he was deformed, did not wish to have children like himself. In sleeping with his wife, he used to place a beautiful picture before her, so that by desiring its beauty and in some manner taking it in, she might effectively transmit it to the offspring she conceived. We may be inclined to regard all this as little more than fictional reworkings of an old notion that goes back to Aristotle and crops up naturally enough in writers like Galen and Pliny, namely, that the child one gives birth to is somehow impressed with the marks of the parent's imaginings at the moment of conception, but clearly there is more to the notion than just that. We need to examine the roles of pictures and sculptures more closely. At almost exactly the same time as the passage from Augustine was excerpted in Simon Matiolas's 1614 encyclopedia, Julio Mancini was composing his splendid compendium of information about painters and painting, the Considerazioni sulla Pittura. At the end of a fairly technical discussion of the appropriate locations for pictures, he had this to say about the adornment of bedrooms. Lascivious things are to be placed in private rooms, and the father of the family is to keep them covered, and only uncover them when he goes there with his wife, or an intimate who is not too fastidious. And similar lascivious pictures are appropriate for the rooms where one has to do with one's spouse, because once seen, they serve to arouse one and to make beautiful, healthy, and charming children not because the imagination imprints itself on the fetus, which is of different material to the mother and father, but because each parent, through seeing the picture, imprints in their seed a similar constitution which has been seen in the object or figure. And so the sight of similar objects and figures, well-made and of the right temper, represented in color, is of much help on these occasions, but they must nevertheless not be seen by children and old maids, nor by strangers and fastidious people. For all the attempt to provide a scientific causal explanation for this belief in the efficacy of pictures, derived from Mancini's own reading of writers like Solinus, to us both the explanation offered and the belief itself seem improbable, if not completely fantastic. But when we encounter the Counter-Reformation view that one should certainly not have pictures in one's bedroom, 
of those of whom one cannot possess the original, we begin to sense that the matter may not be so fantastic after all. If we cannot yet share the belief in efficacy, we can at least understand the fear and concern that lies at its basis in writers like Paolietti and Molanus, and there are many like them in the immediate wake of the Council of Trent. But are these passages no more than testimonies to the repeated use of a commonplace whose meaning has been drained from it by centuries of hackneyed and unthinking reproduction? For example, are we to dismiss the passages on the grounds that the counter-reformation critics of art were simply motivated by a prurient censoriousness, that Heliodorus was writing a pretty romance, that the quotation from St. Augustine was merely an illustrative aside to a serious theological argument, though its 17th century excerpter used it quite specifically in the context of females and generation, and that Mancini's account cannot be construed as anything but the incredible repetition of a particular cliché about the power of art, it is worth considering the possibility not only that every one of these writers actually believed such notions, but also that we should take them seriously, too. Let us move from the bedroom to the nursery. Part 4 of Giovanni Domenici's Rule for the Management of Family Care written in 1403, is concerned with the upbringing of children. In order for one's offspring to be brought up for God, the first of Domenici's recommendations is that one should have paintings in the house of holy boys or young virgins in which your child, when still in swaddling clothes, may delight as being like himself and may be seized upon like by the like thing with actions and signs attractive to infancy. And as I say for paintings, so I say of sculptures. The Virgin Mary is good to have, with the child on her arm and the little bird, or the pomegranate in its fist. A good figure would be Jesus suckling, Jesus sleeping on his mother's lap, Jesus standing politely before her, Jesus making a hem, and the mother sewing that hem. In the same way, he may mirror himself in the Holy Baptist, dressed in camel skin, a small boy entering the desert, playing with birds, sucking on the sweet leaves, sleeping on the ground. It would not harm if he saw Jesus and the Baptist and the murdered innocents so that the fear of arms and armed men would come over him. And so too, the little girls should be brought up in the sight of the 11,000 virgins, discussing, fighting, and praying. I would like them to see Agnes with a fat lamb, Cecilia crowned with roses, Elizabeth with many roses, Catherine on the wheel, with other figures that would give them love of virginity with their mother's milk, desire for Christ, hatred of sins, disgust at vanity, shrinking from bad companions, and a beginning through considering the saints of contemplating the supreme saint of saints. 
how much pictures and sculptures could achieve, and what a range of edifying functions they had. This edification was, in fact, one of the three functions explicitly attributed to all religious images throughout the Middle Ages, and for a considerable time after. But the candid faith in what images could do or bring about is very striking in this packet passage, and it calls out for comment. In what sense did they really have the effects attributed to them here? A view so strongly and attractively asserted must, one supposes, have had some grounding in firm belief, rather than in the straightforward repetition of a topos or of a notion commonly held. There are several other noteworthy elements within this passage. The enumeration of so charming and various a list of subjects is unusual, and it provides remarkable literary corroboration of the kind of images available at the turn of the 15th century. Many of these kinds of pictures, it is true, we already know from our experience of museums, but here is as clear a contemporary description as one could wish of at least one set of functions. It is also a telling and straightforward reminder of the need to consider all possible uses of images, and all possible images, from high use and high art to low use and low art. But in the context of our discussion, it has an evidential status that transcends such purely antiquarian and functional issues. Its importance lies in the overall assumption of the effectiveness of images, to the extent that they have the potential to affect even, or perhaps especially, the youngest of viewers, and affect them not just emotionally, but in ways that have long-term behavioral consequences. It is hard to know what to make of the best modern commentator's view that Dominici, who illum illuminated manuscripts himself, did not rank painting very high, considering it useful for small children's religious education. We may well ask ourselves on just what basis the commentator would have Dominici rank pictures high, or in what sense the education of small children rates as a baser criterion of status than any other. Be that as it may, Dominici appears to assume that effectiveness proceeds from a kind of identification between beholder and what is represented by the image. The child delights in the pictures because they are like himself, and so he will be seized upon by the like thing with actions and signs attractive to infancy. He mirrors himself in the Holy Baptist, while girls will acquire girlish virtues by seeing the same qualities exemplified by the appearance and action of female saints. In addition to the problem of identification, two more issues should be noted here. First, the unproblematic equation of painting with sculpture, at any rate with regard to effectiveness, and second, the apparent belief that contemplation leads first to imitation and then to spiritual ascent. We will return to them, but first let us move from conception and childhood to death and consider responses to pictures not at the beginning of lives, but at the end.
What comfort could anyone conceivably offer to a man condemned to death in the moments prior to his execution? Any word or action would seem futile, and it would be as naught beside the inner resources of human weakness of the condemned person. But in Italy, between the 14th and 17th centuries, brotherhoods were set up to offer a kind of solace, and the instruments of consolation were small painted images. A fair number of these tavolucci, or tavolette, as they were alternatively called, survive, and their use is attested to by a considerable amount of supplementary visual evidence. Each tavoletta was painted on both sides. On one side was the scene from the Passion of Christ, on the other side a martyrdom that was more or less relevant to the punishment to be meted out to the prisoner. This martyrdom the brothers would relate in some inspirational way to the actual plight of the prisoner, as they comforted him in his cell or prison chapel during the night before his morning execution. On the next day, two members of the Brotherhood would hold one of the pictures before the condemned man's face all the way to the place of execution. Then, as described in the surviving Instruzioni for the Florentine Compagna di Santa Maria delle Croce al Tempio, as soon as the afflitto arrives at the place of execution, the comforter will permit but not exhort him to say something edifying, and when the push is given to him by the executioner, the comforter will pass to the other side of the ladder, and keeping always a hand attached to the ladder for security, will maintain the tavoletta before the face of the suspended afflitto as long as he thinks he has not departed this life. More edifying words shall pass. There will be opportunity for confession. Absolution will be given, and the man expires. Not much benefit would arise from arguing whether words or images were of greater consequence on such an occasion, and one might well feel that the whole business was ineffectual. Certainly one would be justified in maintaining that the practice was clearly institutionalized, and that its roots lay in conventional views of death, which were out of touch with its psychological reality. In short, that it served the living better than the imminently dead. One might furthermore insist that the practice is to be seen specifically in the context of the distinctive functions and status of images in 15th and 16th century Italy. But even if that context is narrowly specified, one is still left the problem of effectiveness, even if only imputed. This is an eyewitness account of the execution of Pietro Pagolo Boscoli, who was condemned to death on 22nd February 1512 for his participation in an anti-Medicean plot. And as he ascended the stair, he kept his eyes on the tavoletta, and with most loving accent said, Lord, thou art my love, I give thee my heart. Here I am, Lord, I come willingly. And this he said with such tenderness 
that all who heard him were in tears. And halfway down the stairs, he met the crucifix and said, What I, what ought I to do? And the friar replied, This is your captain who comes to arm you. Salute him, honor him, and pray that he gives you strength. And while descending the second flight of stairs, he continued praying, saying, In manus tua, Domine. Could an image really do all this? Could it be that affecting and so consoling? Perhaps it is all in the report. One might feel, reading this, that Pago was unusually courageous and stoical in the face of death, that he was clearly an educated and quite learned man, and that the eyewitness may somehow have wished to glamorize his end. But that is not the point. The question is this. Why was it felt that images, rather than just words, could serve such a function? that they could in any way be effective under such conditions. For the condemned man, they may or may not have achieved their supposed purpose, but the institution as a whole was based on a judgment about the efficacy of images that was predicated upon a belief in their inevitable power. And that social belief cannot merely be regarded as ostensible. It appears to reflect a cognitive reality. Say we recall the fact that one could receive a papal indulgence for kissing the tabletta, a kustafel in German, but still we would not have resolved the question, why kiss an image at all? Even if it is a matter of relevant decorum, of a ritualized act, we would persist in wondering about the historical and the non-historical origins of such a practice. We still need to know about the fundamental impulses that are institutionalized in these ways. That is the issue at stake, the analysis of the deep end of such practices, not the superficial, ostensible level. It is worth remembering that a variety of other images may be associated with the kind of function served by the tavolette, from Fra Angelico's lamentation which hung in the little chapel of Santa Maria della Croce al Tempio in Florence, where the condemned man heard his last mass, to the paintings by Benozzo Gozzoli, a deposition, and by several 16th century artists at his last stops before his execution. From the condemned cell all along the route, and then finally on the scaffold itself, Images were provided in the hope that the afflito would, at the very least, be provided with lessons and with solace and comfort. Of course, later the provision of such images became habitual, but we cannot simply allow the problem, just as with pictures in bedrooms, to rest there. It is obvious that paintings and sculptures do not and cannot do as much for us now? Or can they? Perhaps we repress such things. But do they ever? Perhaps the cases I have cited are no more than some rather conventional ideas dressed up as empirical reports. If the first answer is correct, then we must examine the matter of repression more closely. If the second answer is correct, then we should consider the relations between 
convention and belief with greater precision, since most reporters presumably believed what they were reporting. There is abundant historical and ethnographic evidence for the efficacy of images, but how are we to evaluate the material? What status are we to attach to the reports? Let us say that the evidence for efficacy can only be articulated in terms of cliché and convention, and that we are increasingly ignorant of those clichés and conventions. Some we retain, like the belief that the eyes of a good portrait follow one round the room. Others we lose, like the belief that a picture of a fair and naked person in the bedroom will somehow improve the offspring we conceive. This raises another issue, that of the relation between convention and belief, and then behavior. Does a convention become naturalized in a culture so that cliches about images may actually provoke behavior that meets the terms of the cliché? Repeat an idea often enough, and it can, but need not, form the basis for an action. But how do conventions become naturalized? And what do we mean when we say that they do? Perhaps images no longer work in the ways I have begun by reporting precisely because contexts are so different. How then is one to describe the extent to which context conditions response? If it does, always and wholly, then we must leave behavior and emotion outside of the realm of cognition. But before we do so, consider the other side of the coin. The great iconoclastic movements of the 8th and 9th century in Byzantium, of Reformation Europe, of the French Revolution, and of the Revol Russian Revolution have been much studied. From the time of the Old Testament, Rulers and public have attempted to do away with images and have assaulted specific paintings and sculptures. Everyone can produce an example of an attacked image. Everyone knows of at least one historical period in which iconoclasm was either spontaneous or legitimized. People have smashed images for political reasons and for theological ones. They have destroyed works which have roused their ire or their shame. They have done so so spontaneously, or because they have been directed to do so. The motives for such acts have been and continue to be endlessly discussed, naturally enough, but in every case we must assume that it is the image, whether to a greater or less degree, that arouses the iconoclast to such ire. Thus much we can claim, even if we argue that it is because the image is a symbol of something else, that it is assailed, smashed, pulled down, destroyed. Historians of art and of images have been strikingly apprehensive and diffident about assessing the implications for their study of the great iconoclastic movements and they have been even more reluctant to acknowledge the strain of antagonism that manifests itself on more apparently neurotic levels, as in the increasingly abundant assaults on pictures and statues, in museums and public places, 
to say nothing of the private, unknown act. The response to any inquiry about motive is likely to be one of great caution, even fear, than to categorize out the motive of the assailant. The assailant and his motives are wholly uninteresting to us, for one cannot apply normal criteria to the motivations of someone who is mentally disturbed. This is what the director of public relations claims when an object, major or minor, is attacked in his museum. We easily concur. We do not vent our anger in this way on images in public places. The image, or what is represented on it, may rouse our shame, hostility, or fury, but it would certainly not cause us to wreak violence upon it, and we certainly would not break it. Or would we? No one can answer the question with complete confidence. For whatever reasons, whether directly related to the image or not, to the way it looks, to what it represents, or to the general emotional state in which we may or may not be, we recognize the potential for such a lapse in ourselves. We can all acknowledge the narrowness of the borders between the kinds of behavior manifested by the iconoclast and normal, more restrained behavior. And although for the most part, we absolutely prefer to isolate such deeds, to put them well beyond the psychological pale, still we recognize the dim stirrings of antipathy and involvement that outleaps control in the iconoclast. The issue that presents itself to us is one of repression. Let us briefly return to Giovanni Dominici, the passage in which he insists on the beneficial inculcatory effects of pictures and sculptures concludes to us a little surprisingly in a way that speaks to one of the fundamental fears of all art and indeed of image making. This takes us one step further from belief in the power of images to actual response. I warn you, if you have paintings in your house for this purpose, beware of frames of gold and silver, lest they, your children, become more idolatrous than faithful, since if they see more candles lit and more hats removed and more kneeling to figures that are gilded and adorned with precious stones than to the old smoky ones, they will only learn to revere gold and jewels and not the figures, or rather the truths represented by those figures. Here is the old fear of idolatry, but here too is the neat sociological evidence of history. The fear of idolatry, theoretically outlined over endless centuries, may well not have persisted as acutely as it did if Dominici, like so many others, had not observed the lit candles the hats removed, the kneeling to figures. To what an endless variety of behaviors do images arouse and provoke one? But in Dominici's passage, too, are the rudiments, as elsewhere in the Middle Ages and after, of a strict semiotics of visual signs. Here is the most explicit insistence that one should not focus on the materiality of the sign, the gold and jewels, but on the figures, or, better still, 
on the truths represented by those figures. Alle figure ovvero verità per quelle figure rappresentate. There could be no clearer way than as today of talking about the power of images than by making those necessary distinctions, now codified in the simple Saussurian terms of sign, signifier, and signified. In his avowal of the possibility of the allegorical, Domenici has a clear sense of something that is still beyond or behind the signified and distinguished from it. For Cardinal Domenici, the benef beneficence of images accrued from the belief that the exemplary beauty and actions of what was represented on them would somehow help assure like qualities in the living young beholder. If you do not wish to or cannot make your house into a sort of temple, if you have a nurse, have them taken off into church at a time when there is no crowd nor any services being said. For writers like Molanos and Cardinal Paoletti, the potential danger of images arose from a similar belief. Have a picture of someone in the bedroom, and you might want to possess that person. Adults presumably being more capable of moving from the desire to imitate the admirable to the desire to possess the admirable. That is why it was recommended not to have pictures in one's bedroom of those of whom one could not possess the original. What joins all such writers in their views of the effectiveness, good and bad, of images is the tacit belief that the bodies represented on or in them somehow have the status of living bodies. The issue is absolutely not one of mere reminding. The images do not just remind one, in exemplary or dangerous fashion, of loved or ad admired figures, for if it were, the paintings or sculptures would not have the effectiveness they do. It is perhaps in this area more than any other that we may examine the issue of repression most clearly. We fear the body in the image. We refuse to acknowledge our engagement with it, and we deny recognition of those aspects of our own sexuality that it may seem to threaten or reveal. For example, in the course of the 15th and 16th centuries, both in Italy and Northern Europe, hundreds of images were produced which showed the infant Christ's genitalia at the center of the composition, or with significant attention focused on them. There are paintings where Christ's legs seem deliberately splayed to reveal his pudenda, or his mother, or in a few cases, Saint Anne touches them, and where the adoring magi focus their gaze on his groin. But as Leo Steinberg has recently and compellingly pointed out in a discussion of the theological underpinnings of such pictorial emphases, historians have resolutely failed to notice just how this aspect of what such pictures show. When he did point out what now seems obvious, the level, the noise of disapproval was very loud. 
and accusations of frivolity were widely leveled. Either the pictorial facts were blatantly denied, or they were explained away in such contorted and embarrassed ways that the more, more or less impartial observer could be left in doubt of the extent of the repression. But this moves some distance from questions of effect and efficacy. It also may seem to demonstrate little more than straight prudishness. With the paintings adduced by Steinberg, it may be claimed, we deal with pictures whose substance touches on too intimate a part of ourselves, ever to be dealt with without embarrassment. And so the repression is not so complicated. But the lessons of such pictures and Steinberg's analysis go far beyond the sim simple demonstration of the response that is prudish. It is not only the generations who have failed to notice. It is the attitude of the reviewers who reveal the extent of what they cannot bring themselves to acknowledge. The same might be said, to take only one further example, of any number of discussions of Titian's Venus of Urbino. Either they dwell on the classical beauty of the nude, or some other such ideal standard, or they overextend themselves in complex iconographic interpretations. Twenty-five years ago, it was argued that, despite her clearly individualized features, this was no particular woman. She was Venus herself. Nor was she the common sensual Venus of classical mythology. She was the celestial, the cosmic Venus, typifying and celebrating the joys of marital fidelity and domesticity. Some of these interpretations may even have truth in them, but it is only in recent years that scholars have begun to suggest or to revive a much older idea that at least one kind of response, and possibly even the raison d'etre of the picture, had to do with male sexual interest in the beautiful female nude, that is, Titian's Venus, or, say, Giorgione's Dresden Venus. It is true that there are sumptuous colors and ravishing paintwork in Titian's picture. There are charming elements, like the richly attired lady in the corner and the girl crouching over the chest, the urn, the landscape, and the little dog delightfully curled up at the foot of the bed. We may indeed be charmed by these things, as we may assume many people once were too. But it would be wrong not to admit the possibility of the response that has to do with sexuality, with a love of looking, and with the projection of desire. A male description of what appears to be the main object of the picture, of what, by any reckoning, any describer would count as the main focus of attention, and, one might suppose, the main focus intended by the painter, could run as follows. A naked young woman looks frankly at the beholder. Her chestnut tresses fall over her naked shoulders. Her nipples are erect. With her left hand, she only half covers her pudenda. She almost toys with them, while the shadow around them suggests, if it does not actually indicate, her pubic hair. 
She is completely naked except for the ring on her little finger and the bracelet around her wrist. The sensuality of the representation would have been plain to many and may well continue to be so. But not many will admit to this, at least not if they are well-schooled. The texts and monographs mostly avoid acknowledging the overt sexuality of such paintings. The obfuscations are extraordinary. Dense iconographic readings and sensitively aesthetic evaluation of form, colors, handling, and composition are the convenient categories of descriptions for pictures like these. But they obscure the analysis of response they also enable the repression of feelings that pictures such as these may still evoke. Of course, the matter is more complicated than simply evading what some people might conclude to be the sexual invitation of pictures like the Venus of Urbino, or the many versions of Venus with a lutinist or organist, usually taken to be neoplatonic allegories. It is hard to be sure, in the first place, of the precise nature of the painting's intention. It may, after all, have been mixed. Perhaps he wanted to paint an erotic picture, but he may also have wanted to do the colors well and lusciously. Second, while the sexual element in these pictures can hardly be denied, there may well have been other factors that determine their purchase and that still arouse our appreciative or negative response, such as the artist's skill in making a good painting. But there is a great deal more that we tend to forget, evade, deny, or repress. These are relations that will be hard to define. All this may be laboring the obvious, it will be held that we have, after all, become increasingly candid about sexual representation and its production and consumption. Perhaps there are very few left who care about or are taken in by the plotting and bookish evasion of meanings and import. But a sufficiently significant number remain, and the cases cited here are extreme examples of a general tendency we go into a picture gallery, and we have been so schooled in a particular form of aesthetic criticism that we suppress acknowledgement of the basic elements of cognition and appetite, or admit them only with difficulty. Sometimes, it is true, we are so moved that we may be on the verge of tears. Before the rest, when we see a painting, we speak of it in terms of color, composition, expression, and the means of conveying things like space and movement. It is the cultured layman or intellectual who most readily articulates this kind of response, even though occasionally there may be a sneaking feeling that it has deeper psychological roots, which we prefer to keep buried or simply cannot exhume. We refuse or refuse to admit those elements of response that are more openly evinced by people who are less schooled. In such cases, we are either being psychologically unanalytic or 
discomfort with ruder feelings prevents their articulation. But how do we test these claims, however obvious, about responses to pictures such as the Venuses of Giorgione and Titian, and how do we refine our conclusions? For whatever the seductive pleasures of these images, no one would claim that the modern beholder's response is likely to be the same or as strong as that of the 16th century viewer. Let us deal with immediate possibilities first, and then explore others. We can claim that the very obviousness of the matter provides sufficient evidence. Is it, a, it is a picture of a naked woman, and so the male sexual response comes to the fore. It is a beautiful picture of a beautiful naked woman, and so the male sexual response, given male conditioning, is primary. This is to elevate assumptions we automatically make, once freed of repression, to the status of the evidential, and in some courts that would not be misleading, especially in those courts that must decide on the possibilities of retrieving what is fundamental in the matter of response. Second, we grant a similar status to intuition. We intuit the plausibility of the sexual reading. So do others whom we know, and we accord the judgment intersubjective validity. Third, we collect data from actual beholders and conduct a sociological survey. This is just the course that those skeptical of my claims so far are likely to advocate. The claims are too apodictic. They have a certain air of plausibility, but they are unproven. But for such evidence to be used, one would still need models of psychological and cultural conditioning, of how to take account of varieties of schooling, of differences in the far and obscure corners of one culture, and of the awe that one feels when one enters a museum and sees a picture in an elaborate gilt frame behind the neatly draped scarlet rope, to say nothing of bulletproof glass. The fourth possibility for testing is continuous with the methodological and ideological predicates of this book. We consider powerful responses and discernible patterns of behavior that we know from people around us or within ourselves. That may mean looking at more everyday forms of imagery or clear forms of historical use, of a kind that sometimes, but not generally, pertains to high or canonical art. Then we seek equivalent models or equivalent contexts from the past or within the realms of art, and we strive to avoid circularity. Let, the, let us return to the case of the Venus of Urbino. The picture is plainly erotic, even though our perception of its sensuality may be comparatively muted. It is both a truism and a commonplace that the expansion of methods of reproduction, above all of photography, has frequently led, had the result of turning the shock of first sight into the near indifference of familiarity. In any case, since 1538, people have become used to still more candid pictures, like Manet's Olympia, or the centerfolds of a wide range of magazines. 
It is precisely responses to these that one should not neglect in considering images like Titian's Venus. Even now, with a picture like this, we must repress a great deal to avoid admitting to the consequences of scopophilia and the desirous act of looking. It is not extravagantly hypothetical to imagine how much more direct an appeal such a picture must have made to the sexual responses of some 16th century beholders, before Manet, before Playboy, before the plenitude of reproductive processes, from printmaking to photography. The reason that it is not extravagantly hypothetical will emerge from the abundance of historical evidence I will bring forward. None of this, however, is to claim that modern beholders respond in the same way to 16th century pictures as 16th century beholders did, or that Indian erotic sculptures arouse the same responses in Westerners as in Indians. The aim is to plot responses and then to consider why images elicit, provoke, or arouse the responses they do. The issue is why behavior that reveals itself in such apparently similar and recurrent ways is awakened by dead form. But let us not be too guarded in our awareness of the changes of context, both visual and historical. Of course, it is possible for a male to gaze upon the revelation of a naked female form without being sexually aroused. But even with a picture as ancient as Titian's, we count the fact that this is no casual unveiling once such forms are presented as paintings, the spectator is invited to dote on the body in the picture and to engage those feelings of possession and fetishism from which, as long as he looks at the picture, he chooses not to escape. But analysis is complex and different. If we are to understand the relations between 16th century paintings, such as the Venus of Rubino, and the sexual feelings of men and women, we have to begin by setting them in the context of a wide variety of related material. Apart from, or in the absence of, written documents, the phen phenomenological evidence is primary, but a necessary refinement must ensue and that pertains to the selection of images. We may take the image in the centerfold, the closer in composition and color to the problematic case the better, and consider the phenomenology of scopophilia and arousal. But to this procedure, we must join the historical and contextual one as we ponder the kinds of response that other forms of apparently erotic imagery may have been capable of arousing. For the 16th century, for example, we might take prints such as the Modi after Julio Romano and the La Chivier of Agostino Caracci, but then we are presented with a combination of erotic naked form and strong sexual suggestiveness or even the sexual act itself. 
With German nudes of the first part of the 16th century, the problem is similar. In considering paintings such as those of the Grenaches, we should also turn to the extraordinarily erotic prints of Sebald Behem and his circle, where the genital orientation is possibly even more blatant than in the Italian prints, and where the male gaze is even more directly implicated. Thus, we confront the initial complexities of analysis. There are more. Some problems disappear, others persist. Perhaps it might be argued that these prints are not art, but that is hardly the issue. Whether or not they are art, they evoke responses that we must take into account when we consider works that are regarded as art. Perhaps it will be objected that the prints are reproductive images on paper, in black and white, lacking the delicious modulations of color of Giorgione and Titian. But then we must ask these questions. What are the consequences of reproduction for the aura of the image? Do we respond more strongly, violently, demonstrably, to the painted picture hung up in a public place, or to a small print, such as one by Sibald Behem, which we can keep with us and produce when we like, doting on it privately. Which gives the greater frisson? It might also be desirable to establish a distinction between the erotic and the pornographic, or at least to devise a sliding scale, beginning with a work that presents the nude cold, as it were, then passing to something that more blatantly suggests sexuality, and terminating with a representation of the sexual act itself. But here we stop ourselves and pause as we recognize the further difficulties that arise from analytic refinement. For example, the erotic pornographic distinction may only be semantically real and intersubjectively intersubjectively variable. We may not need the distinction at all in our analysis of response. After all, it is not uncommon to find that the suggestive turns out to be more provocative than the blatantly descriptive. But with images from the distant past, it may well help to establish the limits of the publicly acceptable and the borderline between that which rouses shame and that which does not. Modern beholders may no longer find the Venus of Urbino especially arousing, not only because they have seen so many reproductions of it and many others like it, but because sexual imagery can now go so much further. One has only to consider the vastly greater sexual expressiveness and exposure in popular imagery from billboards to pornographic magazines over the past few decades. But even with regard to the 16th century, one will still need to know how far Giorgione and Titian pushed beyond the normal conventions of represent representing the nude figure. Did they transgress the conventions just sufficiently to arouse the prurient, or much more, or not at all?
Such are the multiplicity of models and controls that inevitably present themselves to the analysis of history and theory of response. Some questions can only be answered by more historical research, others by more sophisticated phenomenological and psychological techniques. But all are predicated on the examination of as wide a range of imagery as possible, both high and low, both canonical and everyday. Without popular imagery, we can say little about the likely effects of the possible response to other forms of imagery. Here, if anywhere, historians of art acting as historians of images can come into their own, for here they utilize their old skills in assessing the comparative styles of different forms of art and imagery. They see differences and distinction where others may not, and then they may proceed to judge the role of style in engendering particular responses and particular behavior. In doing so, they renounce the primacy of the traditional concerns of the history of art. Speculation about the genesis of individual works of art, the attempted retrieval of historical aesthetic categories, the assessment of the status of both creator and object, particularly when it is conceived of as high art, and in general the privileging of the upper end of the scale at the expense of the lower. The ethno ethnography and everyday history that form the subject of this book have, it is true, been rated for the provision of illustrative and comparative material for many of these traditional concerns. But on the whole, this kind of material has seemed too complex too diffuse and, at the same time, too embarrassingly trenchant to merit any kind of comprehensive analysis or overview. The obstacles in the way of assessing past responses, indeed of reclaiming them from history, are clear, and I have already alluded to many of them. It will be held that response is dulled as a result of familiarity or reproduction, that the schemata and limits of representation vary and were not the same in the past as they are now, and that the very fact that a work is displayed in a museum, that it is acknowledged and recognized as canonical or as a masterpiece, powerfully conditions response. All this is true, and it may well be the case, that in the domain of high art, the spontaneous response is indeed the intellectualizing one. Nevertheless, I proceed in the belief that however much we intellectualize, even if that motion is spontaneous, there still remains a basic level of reaction that cuts across historical, social, and other contextual boundaries. It is at precisely this level, which pertains to our psychological, biological and neurological status as members of the same species, that our cognition of images is allied with that of all men and women, and it is the still point which we seek. 
no claim is to be made here that 20th century beholders respond to 16th century images in the way 16th century beholders might have, although we may well, well may. But if we attend to our own responses to, say, the centerfold, we may be in a better position to understand contemporary responses to the news of Giorgione and Titian, or for that matter of Giulio Romano. And we cannot begin to understand either the motivations for or the effectiveness of, say, the images of traitors painted by Andrea del Sarto on the walls of the Palazzo Vecchio, or the 14th century frescoes of the banishment of the Duke of Athens, before we recall the posters produced by the Echo de Beaux-Arts in Paris in the spring and summer of 1968. How then should we proceed? The first task must be to proceed as ethnographers and record as much as possible of all sections of society. We must then act as cultural anthropologists, attending to as wide a range of societies as practical. This is not to deny that different classes respond differently and that social and cultural contexts condition response. Nor is it to deny that images are encoded in such a way as to communicate specific things to specific cultures or groups, the cultures or groups from which they emerge. But our concern is not primarily with interaction at this level. It is to mine what lies below the overlays of schooling, of class consciousness and conditioning, right down to the reflections and symptoms of cognition. The scope of this investigation, as I have already insisted, covers all visual imagery, not just art. In order to understand our responses to high art, we need the general and specific evidence supplied by responses to low images. The history of art is thus subsumed by the history of images. There is and always has been a place for the history of what is and has been regarded as art, but that is not the present domain. The history of images takes its own place as a central discipline in the study of men and women. The history of art stands now a little forlornly as a subdivision of the history of cultures. In the epistemocritical prologue to his youthful The Origins of German Tragic Drama, Walter Benjamin recommended an ascetic apprenticeship, whereby the philosophical explorer eschews both the inductive and the deductive approach, and immerses himself in the most minute details of subject matter. The relationship between the minute precision of the work and the proportions of the sculptural or intellectual whole demonstrates that truth content is only to be grasped through immersion in the most minute details of subject matter. This was the only way to save the phenomena Benjamin platonically insisted. Thus, he directed himself to a vigorous attack on induction.
The attempt to define ideas inductively, according to their range, on the basis of popular linguistic usage, in order then to proceed to the investigation of essence, can lead nowhere. The attack on induction led him to single out R. M. Meyer for criticism. Thus, the inductive method of aesthetic investigation reveals its customary murky coloring here too, for the view in question is not the view of the object resolved in the idea, but that of the subjective states of the recipient projected onto the work. This is what the empathy which R. M. Meyer regards as the keystone of his method amounts to. This method, which is the opposite of the one to be used in the course of the current investigation, sees the art form of the drama, the forms of tragedy, or comedy, or character of situation, as given facts which with, with which it has to reckon. And its aim is to abstract by means of a comparison of the outstanding representatives of each genre, rules, and laws, with which to judge the individual product. And by means of a comparison of the genres, it seeks to discover general principles which apply to every work of art. Now, this is very astringent, and much of it may seem to apply to the present endeavor. But let it not be thought that this is an aesthetic investigation. Let no one think that I will seek general principles to apply to every work of art, nor even to art in general. I will certainly not seek to abstract genres, however pressing the issue of genre and conventional form may or may not turn out to be. Nevertheless, the process of investigation will indeed be inductive. While I am concerned with fragments and proceed by minutely examining them, as Benjamin recommended, I view the whole of human relations with figured imagery in order to lay out certain aspects of behavior and response that may usefully be seen to be universally and transculturally remarkable. There are, of course, plenty of other places where the inductive method is laid to waste, but Benjamin's argument is especially interesting because it is avowedly concerned with the relations between science and art and the analysis of art. This book, it will be seen, is not to be concerned with art above all. It will, however, be concerned with aesthetic issues, but not with issues in the realm of philosophical aesthetics. The enterprise is wholly different from that of Meyer assailed by Benjamin. It is not, to begin with, predicated on the hypostasis of any aesthetic category. Indeed, it is vigorously opposed to that. A naive assumption may be that it hypostasizes response or particular kinds of responses, but nothing could be farther from the case. It does not set out to determine what responses are or are not, nor indeed what response is or is not. It is concerned with the modes of talking about behavior that beholders themselves can recognize, and about behavior and interaction that cannot take place without the presence of the figured object. It will, of course, also have to concern itself with the subjective states of the recipient 
projected onto, if not into, the work. And empathy, as in Meyer, is also at work, but it is a rigorously phenomenological empathy, which may or may not repeat the examples of historical and ethnographic empathy recorded in these pages, in which we will explore philosophically and historically in a number of later chapters. But have I not, in the outline of examples of efficacy and potential efficacy, and of possible arousal, mixed issues of emotion and cognition? I may seem to have allowed one explicit and one implicit category to overlap too easily, since there has been no claim that this book will deal with the vagaries of emotion. Although much in these pages will rouse the disagreement of the author of Languages of Art, and although the task is wholly different from his, Nelson Goodman's statements, as he nears the end of that book, may stand for one of the mottos of this one. Most of the troubles that have been plaguing us can, I have suggested, be blamed on the domineering dichotomy between the cognitive and the emotive. On the one side, we put sensation, perception, inference, conjecture, all nerveless inspection and investigation, fact and truth, on the other, pleasure, pain, interest, satisfaction, disappointment, all brainless response, liking and loathing. This pretty effectively keeps us from seeing that in aesthetic experience, the emotions function cognitively. The work of art is apprehended through the feelings as well as through the senses. The only differences are that we might replace the category of aesthetic experience with something much broader, say, the apprehension of real images, and that our scope extends beyond the work of art to all images. But in his final emphasis, Goodman makes at least one concession in this direction, and the general statement holds. It comes after the claim that symbolization in the broad Goodmanian sense of referring to all images, is to be judged fundamentally by how well it serves the cognitive purpose, and after some diversion down the byway of aesthetic excellence. This subsumption of aesthetic under cognitive excellence calls for one more reminder that the cognitive, while contrasted with both the practical and the passive, does not exclude the sensory or the emotive, that what we know through art is felt in our bones and nerves and muscles as well as grasped by our minds, that all the sensitivity and responsiveness of the organism participates in the interpretation of symbols. I mean the interpretation of symbols in the broader sense. This will not be a book about hermeneutics. When we think again of the initial examples, we are still left with these problems. What credibility can be attached to such apparently incredible tales? In what senses can images have the effectiveness attributed to them there? And in what ways can we talk about that effectiveness? What are the links between the bedroom tales and the tales and the case of responses to imagery seen as erotic? Or between the powerfully consoling image and the refinement of emotional sensitivity through concentration. 
The links have to do with the possibility of arousal and ascent by picture, and by sculpture too, but that, as we shall see, is a slightly different case. Following arousal and ascent, a whole variety of peculiarly symptomatic effects ensue. Why? How? And in what sense that we can still understand? Of course, it is not just a matter of sexual arousal or meditative ascent. In the following chapters, I will consider instances of arousal to tears, to militant action, to follow causes, uh, to make long journeys, to make other images like the one that has deeply moved us, to destroy that which disturbs us, as if we acknowledge in that very act its power. Without embarking on theories of representation, we must also consider how images are made to work in these ways. But I have begun with specific examples because they pose the following questions most acutely of all. Why do we ignore the evidence for the effectiveness and provocativeness of images? How may we speak about such matters? Why are we aroused by the body in the lifeless image, and what do we postulate in its absence? These are the questions to which we must now turn. The God in the Image On the precipitous slopes of the Alzu Gorge in the town of Fokamadur in Klerksi, there is a much venerated statue of the Virgin. A colleague makes a long journey to visit it, as many pilgrims who have done so from the Middle Ages to modern times. Some go with the aim of reaching Rokomadur specifically, others make it a stopping point on the road to the great shrine of Compostela. My colleague does not go in the hope of being healed from some disease, but does she still think, as tens of thousands have, that some benefit will accrue from proximity to the little statue of Our Lady of Rocamadour. She does not go to pray, but she may go to see it, what it is about the image that has made it so famous, or perhaps because so many others have done so. We do not know, we do not precisely, we cannot precisely unravel such motivations. All we can do is remain alert to the pull of the image. And so my colleague makes the arduous trip and forces her way through the crowds that throng the simple chapel housing it. All she finds, or so she feels, is an apparently insignificant and rather ugly little sculpture. She cannot believe all the powers that have been attributed it. It should look more beautiful or more imposing. I could not believe it, she announces on her return. After so long a journey, all I saw was a small, ugly Madonna, with a supercilious look on her face. I was so angry with her. Not anger with it, but anger with her. The issue for the moment is not the disappointment that arises upon realizing that the miraculous is so mundane and unimpressive. With this, we are all familiar. What is at issue is the response that is predicated on the assumption of presence, not on the fact of representation. 
In such cases, what is represented becomes fully present. Indeed, representation is subsumed by presence. Angry with it, not angry with her. Now, of course, when one is irritated, exasperated, or angry, it is sometimes easier to be angry with someone than with something. And in our discussion of iconoclasm, we will see some of the complexity of this psychological field. But still the sign has become the living embodiment of what it signifies. Perhaps it will be suggested that a strong or ingrown belief in the powers of the Virgin easily inclines the believer to see her present, disencumbered of everything that makes her dead representation. Perhaps the suggestion will run that one cannot believe that the Virgin is in the picture, or is the picture, unless one believes, to begin with, in the Virgin, then wanting her to be there, to exist, because of the love we bear her, we willingly concentrate on the image, and what is represented on it becomes present again. She is quite literally represented. The slip from representation to presentation is crucial, from seeing a token of the Virgin to seeing her there. What happens? How do we proceed without engaging in the analysis of the prop propositional status of statements about belief, or the relations between the nature of beliefs and reports about them? In 787, the Second Council of Nicaea brought the first great phase of Byzantine iconoclasm to an end. In order to refute the arguments of the iconoclasts encapsulated in the decision of the first iconoclastic council of 754, it marshaled a vast body of material in favor of images and image worship. There were complex technical discussions taken from the early Greek fathers as well as from the later Byzantine writers, but there were stories too. Innumerable anecdotes were excerpted from the apologists and from the lives of the saints, all intended to exemplify the advantages and benefits of images. One such tale comes from the life of St. John the Fa Faster, patriarch of Constantinople, he died in 595, by his disciple Photinus. The husband of a rich woman was inhabited by an evil demon. Potinus came upon her one evening, and she told him that for three years she had sought help from monks and at shrines, but her efforts were unsuccessful. Finally, she went to a venerable hermit, who had instructed her more or less as follows. Go, he said, to the patriarch John, and bring back an image of the Virgin, with his blessing. Set it up in the entrance to your house, making sure that it is turned away from the city. Everyone who lives in your house will be blessed. The spirit will be expelled and put to flight. It will not approach you again, since God will be near at hand. On the following day, therefore, Photinus took her to the patriarch, but the latter refused to accede to their request. The patriarch was indignant that he, who was also a sinner, should be the instrument of the prospective miracle. 
This upset the resourceful Photinus, but not for long. He thought of an alternative and provided the woman with an image which looked beautiful and precious enough to have come from the patriarch. The image was fixed to the entrance wall of the house, and the woman's husband was duly cured. The cure was effected, as Photinus put it, by the image, which was the place, or rather the token, of the Virgin Mother. In this slip of the tongue, which in the Greek is conveyed by a deliberate catrhesis, hotopos otopos dimelontes parthenometros, lies the nub of the matter. The most distinguished modern commentator on attitudes toward images in the early Byzantine Empire has called it a last-minute withdrawal from the abyss of sheer animism. But to introduce the notion of animism here seems to beg a question or two. It is a little premature. The concept of animism remains unanalytic though we may have a vague idea of what is meant by it. Here, the issue itself might be spelled out more plainly. Clearly, Photinus and the woman with an unhappy husband felt that the miracle had been effected by the Virgin, but it was not the Virgin abstractly or the Virgin purposefully returning to Earth to do the specific miracle. It was the Virgin in the image. Photinus knows that the Virgin cannot really be in the image, so he corrects himself and says that the miracle was wrought by the Virgin represented by the image. But the matter is not so easy. Does he mean that the miracle could only have been wrought by the Virgin represented in that particular form, in other words, by that particular token, or conceivably by that particular type? and wrought only because the image had been obtained from a particular source, and only because it had been placed correctly, as the account would seem to suggest. In that case, effectiveness proceeds specifically from the image. The image, rather than the Virgin, is believed to work. But of course the image only works because of the fusion of image and prototype. And this is precisely the fusion against which all image theory has always raged. In that needful rage lies tacit acknowledgement of the effectiveness that proceeds from fusion. We shall spend some time on responses predicated on the perception that what is represented on an image is actually present or present in it. But perhaps with such responses, it is not that the bodies are present it is as though they were present. When we think, as Photinus did, that the Virgin is in the image, or that the figure in the photo is the living nude, are we only thinking metaphorically or metonymically? If that were the case, then the kinds of responses outlined in this book provide proof of the constructive power of metaphorical and metonymic thought and of the way in which all perception elides representation with reality. Perception, visually or perception neurologically, is not at issue. But still, just as Photinus stopped himself in time, 
on the brink of abyss of sheer animism. We know that we do too. We hasten over to the beckoning portrait. We clutch at the dripping blood on the body of Christ. We start at the waxwork murders, and then we remind ourselves that these are only pictures, painted sculptures, wax models. And so, as soon as we outline the consequences of the belief that what is represented on an image is actually present in it, we must at once ask this. When is belief undermined by consciousness that the image is merely the token of what it represents? Perhaps it will be found that belief and response are never thus undermined or enhanced. Perhaps the undermining or enhancement forever remains secondary. We cannot yet decide. A remarkable West African ceremony presents similar issues of fusion and inherence, but at the same time allows us to expand the elements of response still further until its suppression by the colonial authorities, the Ndako Gyobya cult of the Nupe people of Nigeria used a mask that was different from any other in that country. It was not in the slightest anthropomorphic, but was made of white cloth shaped like a cylinder and was just wide enough to hold a man. This cylindrical shape was suspended from a wheel-shaped bamboo frame fixed to the top of a tall pole, about 12 feet high. It must have made an eerie and terrifying sight as the man inside it moved it forward at varying speeds, occasionally jumping and running or inclining the pole this way and that, lifting and lowering it and making the cloth tube swing and sway. It is not surprising that the Dako Gobia mask should have been used for two purposes. On the one hand, to frighten novices and warn youths during the main Nupi initiation ritual, known as the Gunu, and on the other, to drive out people suspected or convicted of being witches. After describing the ceremony in this manner, the anthropologist who investigated the Ndaku Gyobia cult most fully before its suppression noted that once the performer is inside the mask, he is inseparable from the thing he represents. He is the Ndaku Gyobia, the grandfather or ancestor of Gobia. The people insist, and no longer so-and-so, whom you know and have talked to. The anthropologist tested this claim, perhaps a little naively. Once during the ceremonial, I offered food and drink to the man in the mask, suggesting that he must be in need of refreshments after his exhausting performance. My offer was ridiculed, and I was told that spirits do not eat. There are significant corollaries to all this. Any person who has not been initiated in into the Nigako Gyobia society, or has omitted the preparatory rites, would be killed by the mask as he entered it. The mask, of course, is just cloth and must be cut and tailored. Many masks also show patches and signs of repair.
But again, once the sacrifice has been performed over them, they are no longer merely a material object, but the thing itself which they signify. How description beggars perception? Just cloth, and merely a material object. This, of course, is just what the mask is not. It is nothing less than the Ndako Yobia itself, and in order for it to be thus invested with a living spirit, it has to look a certain way and be consecrated in a certain way. The case from West Africa is the same as the case from Byzantium. The image, once properly prepared, set up, adorned, and decorated, becomes the locus of the spirit. It becomes what is what it is taken to represent. There is a difference, of course. In the African case, the mask, like so many of the masks used in ritual ceremonies in non-Western cultures, is quite literally animated. Spirit, it may be argued, thus passes into material object only through the meditation mediation of some live performer. But whatever the technicalities of mediation, the fact remains that responses to the mask are predicated on the very conflation of sign and signified that we have already noted with images in the West. And effectiveness, in all cases, depends on just this conflation. But again, the matter is apparently not quite so simple. The image seems to acquire its effectiveness only following some act of consecration or other, which invests the mere materiality of the mask or image with powers not attributable to the material itself. The tall, plain shape of the Ndako Kuyobia mask is terrifying. It can drive out evil spirits, and its force is such that if appropriate rites are not followed, it can kill. If one shows insufficient respect to the mask and mutatis mutandus to the Nudako Giobia itself, one is likely to pay an awful penalty. Nadal recalls being told of a Yoruba man who scoffed at the mask and refused to take off his cap, as all onlookers must do. At once, or so his respondents told him, he was struck down and killed. As soon as the image is consecrated, it has at all times to be properly venerated. Insult to the image is insult to what it embodies, represents, or signifies, and terrible punishment is visited on those guilty of such les majeste. But the African case has been introduced not just because it provides an interesting ethnographic parallel to our Western example of inheritance and fusion. The further parallels are striking too, including the notion of respect following, indeed, demand, demanded by consecration. The trouble is that we in the West acknowledge these things very little, if at all. We choose to ignore the kinds of response that transcend cultural and chronological differences, and we refuse to acknowledge those aspects of response to all images that precede detachment and rational observation. Historians of art ignore those symptoms of the power of images 
that go deeper than more or less anodine aesthetic attraction and repulsion. We may be quite happy to believe that images in primitive cultures are felt to partake of the life of what they represent, or even of the life of things other than what they represent. But we do not like to think this of ourselves, or of our own society. We refuse, or have refused for many decades, to acknowledge the traces of animism in our own perception of and response to images. Not necessarily animism in the 19th century ethnographic sense of the transference of spirits to inanimate objects, but rather in the sense of the degree of life or liveliness believed to inhere in an image. The Noop example has been introduced here for another reason. The mask is of a kind that does not provide the cues to life-likeness, other than the moving body within it, that would make it easier for us to understand and grasp the assignment of the living qualities of the signified to it. It has been chosen precisely because of the power of the plain cylindrical shape and the strong responses it seems capable of evoking. The transference of powers to objects with rudimentary and primitive shapes lay at the root of late 19th and early 20th century discussions of animism, but what is easily forgotten is the role and the antiquity of this phenomenon in Western culture. That black meteoric stones, known as biotulia, were early objects of cult worship in ancient Greece, is recorded from the earliest times, and we know from some of the earliest Greek writers that unformed planks, britades, came to serve as the cult statues of particular gods. Even as late as the 4th century, the pro-Christian apologist Arnobius recalled that, before his conversion, Whenever he saw one of these stones anointed and smeared with olive oil, he adored it and addressed himself to it, and he would seek benefits from what he later realized was a senseless stock, as if some force was present in it. For all their polemical or satirical motivation, one takes these stories and recollections seriously. The archaic wooden image, called Abretas, of Hera on Samos, was stolen one day by Tyrrhenian pirates. Unfortunately, their ship refused to move, so the pirates made an offering to the image and abandoned it on the seashore. When the Carians of Samos found it there, they believed that it had run away of its own accord, automatically. Automatos apodidrakinai. In order to prevent it from doing so again, they chained it to a tree trunk, Lugos, before finally returning it to be fixed on its pedestal in the temple. Plutarch recalls that there was a bretus of Artemis at Pelene, which was kept covered for most of the year. But on certain days, the priestess of Artemis carried it in procession, and on these occasions, no one could look directly at the image. Its eyes caused terror and death, and it made trees sterile. In accounts like these, we find some of the most typical ways in which lively powers are attributed to rudimentary and unformed images.
Aetulia are invested with the divine and animated by it. <clears throat> Once anointed, they even work miracles on behalf of their supplicants. Pratatis serve as cult images, the holy loci of particular gods. They too are impsychoi. They are capable of movement. They can be restrained by chaining, and they are capable of causing harm, particularly if their gaze should fall upon someone at the wrong time or on the wrong occasion. Even these primitive and barely formed objects, if they are formed at all, evince the two primary attributes of life mobility and sight. Limbs, whether indicated or merely notional, are believed to be capable of motion. Eyes glint with the implication of divine reality and divine threat. The lesson, then, is not to underestimate the effective power of shapes with which approximate human or animal form, only in the most undifferentiated of ways say, only and solely in terms of their cylindricality or upright rectangularity, and to link this understanding with reports of attrib attributed power. Whether such attributions grow out of a belief in tree divinities is not an issue here. The issue is contained in the question, what is, what is it about perception in history that makes people talk about the origins of images in these ways? The earliest Greek cult statues that may properly be called statues, in the general modern sense, were known as zoana. They were, by all accounts, made of wood, although there may have been exceptions made of stone. The term appears to be a fairly generic one. Very occasionally, it seems interchangeable with colossos. No zoana survive with any certainty, although a few representations on coins and on vase paintings give us some idea of what the earliest ones must have looked like. Plank-like stalks, occasionally topped with a sculpted head of the divinity they were supposed to represent. Others appear to have been incised with lines to suggest their limbs, but hands and feet were not actually separated from torso. They were large and block-like, all the more imposing because of the apparent isolation of the head. It is precisely these heads to which most scholarly attention significantly has been devoted. The earliest ones were probably without hands, without feet, and without eyes. <clears throat> Achiras, Apodos, Amamatus, as a comparatively late source puts it. Their primitive quality would probably be more closely conveyed if one called them from this unhanded, unfooted, and uneyed. Like the Baetulia, Zoana are supposed to have fallen from heaven, and this belief may well lie at the root of the perception that they are invested with divine powers. But it may equally be the case that their appearance and setting inspired such a view. They seem archaic and austere, and qualities like these make them so compelling that we call them divine. The problem is encapsulated in a brief account by Pausanias of the origins of a particular cult statue. He tells in Book 10 of his Guide to Greece of certain fishermen of Mithymna in Lesbos who caught a face made of olive wood in their nets. 
Its appearance, he recalls, suggested something of the divine, even though, or perhaps because, it was outlandish and not like the customary Greek gods. Why, we ask ourselves, did this object suggest something of the divine? Because of its fortuitous discovery, thus connecting it, consciously or subconsciously, with the images that miraculously fell from heaven, or because of its peculiar appearance? The solution of the Methaminians may seem surprising, but it was not entirely unpredictable. They asked the Pythian priestess of what god or hero the figure was an image, and she bade them worship Dionysus Phalon. Whereupon the Methaminians kept the wooden image for themselves and worshipped it with sacrifices and prayers. This introduces an issue that may seem entirely new, the issue of naming. But it is not as new as it seems, since one may well want to align naming with consecration, and then conclude that it is only because a statue is named as a god, or consecrated as a cult statue, that it partakes of the numinous qualities of the divinity. The problem thus acquires a third element. Is the statue divine because it seems to come from heaven, because it looks venerable and therefore godly, or because it is named as a god? The third possibility may be discarded, since, as it is suggested by account in Pausanias itself, the object has to have the potential for godly inherence even before it is taken for naming or consecration. Naming or consecration, as we shall see, may make the object work, but first there must be at least something to suggest its divinity. And so we are left with the other elements, that of chance discovery and that of form. Some stones we kick over on the seafront, others we collect, some we even cherish. There was nothing to stop the Mithamin fishermen from throwing away the object they found in their nets but it looked like a god. In their case, at least, form commanded the veneration accorded to a god, and form suggested the magical spell of the numinous. No one in ancient times seems to have doubted that it was the formal aspect of the zoana that inspired this kind of recognition. Like several other writers, Porphyry maintained quite explicitly that even though the zoana was, were only summarily carved, they were regarded as divine. Their simplicity made them more majestical, as an English translation of 1638 appropriately put it, and divine. But if one were to think that Porphyry made the claim only in order to show the retrograde religiosity of the ancient Greeks, who were so inclined to deification that they could even worship stocks, one would be wrong. His next sentence gives the lie to that possibility. Other statues, though carved with an art that was more refined, and though worthy of admiration, give a lesser idea of their divinity. There seems, in short, to be a direct correlation between the power of the archaic and the eminence of the divinity. The image is arresting because of its archaic form. We cannot tell exactly why, and so it becomes the yet more fitting locus of the divine. Certainly by the time Porphyry was writing there, 
were many who recognized the archaic as a category, and it is not surprising to find comments on the reverence inspired by it. Porphyry himself noted that the oldest sacrificial vessels were regarded as more divine on account of their plain material and the simplicity of their art. But there is nevertheless a strong consistency about the formal qualities attached to the archaic. Rigidity and linearity, the absence of exuberantly decorative elements. And these are just the qualities also to be found in the earliest cult statues of the Greeks. We need not yet worry about the possible circularity of this issue, for even when there appears to be no developed notion of the archaic, images of the kind we have been discussing command the reverence that later appears to be attached to that category. It may well be that very early judgments are less concerned with the idea of the antiquity of the image, but what remains constant is the felt relationship between simple and rudimentary form on the one hand, and divine inheritance on the other. Or perhaps it is rather that the qualities of this order give rise to a sense of the divine present in the object. This by no means exhausts the spell of the archaic, but it is instructive to see how mythical and legendary writing proceeds with the genealogy of images. Every writer who knows about Baetulia, Bertades, and Siwana also knows about Daedalus, the primal sculptor among humans. It was he who separated, and therefore liberated, the limbs of statues from their torsos, opened their eyes, and gave them the appearance of life. Fittingly for one who was usually considered a magician, he was also credited with having been responsible for the creation of statues that move, of automata. Once Daedalus gave limbs to statues and thereby invested them with a semblance of life, they seemed all the more unearthly and divine. If it were possible to imagine this notional stage in the development of images, the stage where images were still rather block-like and unformed, but endowed perhaps with rudimentary markings, with the beginnings of contours and indentation, then one can also start to understand the sense of Pausanias's remark about Daedalus, apropos a naked wooden statue of Heracles at Corinth. All the works of this artist, though rather uncouth to look at, have something of the divine in them. Here again, Pausanias has adumbrated the nature of the conjunction between the rudely sculpted image and the perception of it as godly and supernatural. But instantly the question arises as to whether the image is perceived as numinous because of its lifelike attributes or because of its archaic form. Pausanias may well have chosen the latter, since by the time he wrote, what was lifelike was not regarded as particul particularly miraculous. It was indeed the norm. For a more precise assessment, one turns to the sharper handling of this matter by Diodorus Siculus. A detached and analytic approach is precisely what distinguishes his historical sense from the anecdotalism of Pausanias. In the production of statues, Daedalus so excelled all other men that later generations preserved a story to the effect that the statues he created were exactly like living beings, for they say that they could see and walk, and preserved so completely the disposition of the entire body, 
The statue, which was produced by art, seemed to be a living being. Having been the first to render the eyes open and the legs separately, as they are in walking, and also the arms and hands as if stretched out. At last, we can begin to make sense of the circularity of inherent, inherent divinity and the perception of liveliness. It is possible that the life-giving source of statuary derives from its divine origins or from its association with the cult of a god or goddess. But Diodorus's claim is that it is art that imbues the statues with life. And the claim is not solely motivated by a kind of old antithesis between natural life on the one hand and art on the other. The fact that Daedalus is not a historical figure is neither here nor there. In a manner that is central to the whole of Western culture, all talk about Daedalus and all recollections of him, mythical or not, embody a crucial stage in people's thinking about images and the way they respond to them. It is this stage that we conveniently refuse to acknowledge, except to say that when we think like this, we are thinking in topos, cliché, and commonplace. But how seriously are we to take the statements of writers who are, after all, either polemical apologists, perhaps with a specific axe to grind, like Arnobius, or satirists, like Lucian, or compilers of peregetic anecdotes, like Pausanias, Omnium Gregorium Mendacissimus, and who are spiritually, chronologically, and even geographically divorced from the context of what they describe. Let us be clear about the nature of the evidence sought. No claim will be made for the historical accuracy of the material presented by writers like the above, but substantial claims will be made for the significance of the way in which they speak of responses to images and to art, and for the material they present about this subject. A Christian apologist is likely to distort or even to invent information about responses to pagan idols in order to clarify Christian attitudes to images and to prove their superiority. The same applies to the wide range of Jewish writers who adopt apologetic or iconoclastic positions, from Philo to Josephus. A Lucian or a Juvenal they simply referred to responses and images in order to poke fun at the general absurdity of human behavior. And when it comes to writers like Valerius Maximus and Alien, perhaps the best that could be said of them is that they are more or less indiscriminate collectors of information for all the didactic purposes of Valerius. With little sense of the need to differentiate between old anecdotes and verified facts. But much of the value of these writers lies in their just their lack of scientific pretension. What they say has all the import of the incidental. The most telling information about behavior provided by the rehearser of jokes, the, the deployers of sarcasm, and the converted polemicists on behalf of passionately embraced causes is precisely what they do not specifically set out to tell us about. Furthermore, jokes and anger betray the unconscious and suppress data about human attitudes and behavior that cannot be spelled out in the usual and conventional modes of scientific description. 
If the aim of this book were to provide a history of responses to images, objections to all such sources on the grounds of tone and time would be serious ones, but the aim is not that. It is to seek ways of speaking about the conditions and elements of response. For this reason, idiosyncrasy is admitted, but omitted. We acknowledge the idiosyncrasy of individual behavior, but we admit it, wherever possible, from the description of behavior. Otherwise, description would break up into anecdotalism, and analysis would be thoroughly subverted. We need, therefore, a sufficiently wide range of material to enable the extraction of a reasonably wide variety of random samples. Only on this basis will it be possible to arrive at analytic statements about behavior. That is why a study of this order cannot be confined to the particular case. More than one sample or group of samples is necessary to form an adequate basis for inductive procedure. Even though it is clear that some samples permit extrapolation to the general level better than others, the practical range will be small the ideal range, as large as possible. The aim is not to fix constants, as these only arise from the limitations of a particular hermeneutics. It is rather to see what methodological principles arise from an avowedly limited range of historical examples. Although we imply constancy by isolating recurrent phenomena, There is no intention of implying constancy across all cultures. But absence is just as revealing as presence, and never more so than when constancies are postulated. The investigator, then, has to range widely, provided he or she remains aware of the limitations of the particular sources used. There is no reason to exclude the whimsical, the witty, the angry, and the less intelligent, All these may provide more revealing information than the cool reporter. Nowhere have the problems of evaluating all kinds of material been more clearly laid out than in the preface to Charlie Clerk's almost forgotten book of 1915 on second century theories about the cult of images. Although he dealt with only a fraction of the evidence which we will allow to be at our disposal, His words about the second century have a striking relevance for our much more general study. He sees the crucial difficulties and sets out the issues so succinctly that his exposition of them merits close attention. The study of such a problem, i.e. of the cult of images, is risky not only because it deals with past ages and extinct nations, Think of an ethnologist or historian of religion intending to plot the roles of images in popular piety in Italy or in Spain at the beginning of the 20th century. Imagine the scholar in the course of his researches posing himself innumerable questions on the way. Undoubtedly, he will learn that in such and such a village, a statue has well-defined miraculous properties and on certain occasions another statue is credited with mobility, that a Madonna gathers on her pedestal or in the fold of her garments the written prayers deposited at her feet, that a black virgin is regarded as having fallen from heaven 
or that it was brought there by angels. It will seem to him that in one place the statue is venerated for its own sake, for its substantive qualities. Elsewhere it is the saint who is venerated by way of its icon. For every image whose reputation is known and established, there will be hundreds of others, of which there is no mention. And what will he conclude from that? He will hear old anecdotes, given as miracles and prodigies of the day before. He will note down carefully the affirmations of ten or twenty pious people, and will take the surprised silence of the others as agreement. Continually, he will risk forgetting that the cult is devoted to an old idol that one senses by force of habit, at Mont as Montesquieu put it, and that people unconsciously persist in the gestures they have learned. The scholar of whom we are speaking will not lack documents. He will have more than he could wish for, and it will remain for him to put order into his jumble. But I fear that in his conclusions, he will only be able to formulate trite reflections, ones already made by other travelers. Each one of them, it is true, will be reinforced by an impressive array of examples. A collection of curious facts, unpublished material, redolent folklore. All of this, but the author still does not achieve his aim. He barely knows more than he did before. Cleric describes exactly the kinds of phenomenon that will feature in these pages, both modern phenomena and those whose roots are deep within the earth of national cultures and folklore, all foreseen by a scholar on the basis of his researches into the second century. Cleric could not, what is more, have put the problems faced by the investigator with greater insight and acuity. <clears throat> he recognizes the full implications of his task and its inductive potential, but he sees, too, the near impossibility of his task. Indeed, in his very next paragraph, Cleric touches on what is probably the most crucial difficulty of all. How can one say anything at all about popular response and popular attitudes to images in history in the absence of living witnesses? And what is the relation, if any, between reality and the swift judgments and garrulous phrases of those who write about these matters? What value, we may add, have the belletrists and poetesters for the assessment of belief? The answers to these questions must lie in the use we make of the material we do have. The issue of the evidential status of the commonplace and of the repeated cliches about response that characterize so much of the writing and the reporting about images must be resolved. The extent to which general judgments about response are predicated on a theory, however tacit, of human nature should be clarified and a judgment should be made as to whether the reports of and about the unschooled or, say, the primitive are somehow more telling than the refined judgments of the schooled, of the sophisticated, and of the refined. If one cannot satisfactorily come to terms with any of these issues, then the only recourse available will be to hard sociological data, 
of the kind examined by Pierre Bourdieu in his two remarkable but unrevealing books, L'Amour de l'Art, Les Musées d'Art European et le Public, and La Distinction, Critique Sociale du Jugement, which make use of the techniques of social survey and purposely formulated, purposively formulated questionnaire. Do we then go out into the subways and museums and ask about responses to images in places like these, or do we develop a theoretical structure that enables us to come speak in general terms about response and behavior and the presence of all images? This book would founder here if there was no hope of that possibility. The value of the commonplace. The following lines occur near the beginning of Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story entitled The Prophetic Pictures. The story as a whole contains much about art. Pictorial skill being so rare in the colonies, the painter becomes an object of general curiosity. If few or none could appreciate the technical merit of his productions, yet there were points in regard to which the opinion of the crowd was as valuable as the refined judgment of the amateur. He watched the effect that each picture produced on such untutored beholders and derived profit from their remarks while they would as soon as thought of instructing nature herself as him who seemed to rival her. Their admiration, it must be owned, was tinctured with the prejudices of the age and the country. Some deemed it an offense against the Mosaic law, and even a presumptuous mockery of the creator, to bring into existence such lively images of his creatures. Others, frightened at the art which could raise phantoms at will and keep the form of the dead among the living, were inclined to consider the painter as a magician, or perhaps the famous black man of old witch times, plotting mischief in a new guise. These foolish fantasies were then half-believed among the mob. Even in superior circles, his character was invested with a vague awe, partly rising like smoke wreaths from the popular superstitions, but chiefly caused by the varied knowledge and talents which he made subservient to his profession. In this passage, Hawthorne announces some of the most crucial issues in the history and ethnography of images. He begins by alluding to the significance of the relationship between center and periphery. He is aware of the aura of the image makers. He moves on to the dialectic between sensitivity to form and artistic skill on the one hand, and on the other, the kinds of responses which do not appear to be so dependent on formal and technical factors. Then he emphasizes the significance of the effect of pictures, reminds the reader of their peculiar ability to keep the dead among the living, and not only the form of the dead, and he suggests some of the basis for the fear images arouse and the motives for the constraints people apply to their making. Here too is an awareness of the consequences of perceiving images as lively and of the presumption of the artist in emulating that sole being who gives life to form. Just as in the Islamic hadith, 
where the artist, upon reaching heaven, is challenged by God to emulate him by breathing life into his creations, and failing to do so, is cast down and punished. But most resonant of all is Hawthorne's insistence on what that vast area in which the opinion of the crowd was as valuable as the refined judgment of the amateur. Admittedly, he acknowledges the conditioning role of the prejudices of the age and the country, but he goes further with his description of the parallel with magic. For all that, he clearly does not regard the effects he ascribes to pictures as magical in themselves. It is just that they work in a manner that may be likened to popular perceptions of magic and wizardry. This is the nub of issue. We have yet to see why images are believed to work in ways that transcend the analytic patterns of everyday rationality. And while Hawthorne appears on the face of it to relegate the classes of belief he, he describes to the level of the untutored, the crowd, the mob, there is an undercurrent of awareness that they pertain to the rest of us too. It is an undercurrent that swells at the beginning with the acknowledgement of the value of the opinion of the crowd and ends discomfortingly with the statement that even in superior circles, his character was investigated, invested with a vague awe, rising like smoke wreaths from popular superstitions. The fact is that Hawthorne knew clearly what I am claiming as one of the underlying principles of this study that we too have the kinds of beliefs about images that people who have not been educated to repress those beliefs and responses have. And we respond in the same ways. We too feel a vague awe at the creative skills of the artist. We too fear the power of the images he makes and their uncanny abilities, both to elevate us and to disturb us. They put us in touch with truths about ourselves in a way that can be only described as magical, or they deceive us as if by witchcraft. But because we have been educated to talk and think about images in ways that avoid confronting just these kinds of effects, the only way we can be frank is to attend to the responses and reports of those whom we regard either as simple, unsophisticated, or provincial, or indeed, to attend to the peoples of Africa, Asia, and America, whom anthropologists have thankfully ceased calling primitive. The term primitive, however, may still retain its usefulness if we acknowledge it in connection with feelings and emotions that perceive the repressive overlay that education in civilized cultures endows us with. It could perhaps be argued that this is all quite wrong but the only way in which we can adequately be adequately an analytic about the phenomenon of response is by acknowledging the differences between traditional and primitive cosmologies and our own modern scientific worldview. Perhaps we should simply admit that responses based on the attribution of life and lifelike powers to objects are characteristic of societies in which the basic explanatory category is in terms of the gods of a pantheon. We, on the other hand, use science, not religion, as the basic term of explanation. 
This intellectualist stance may well have a certain analytic utility, but it makes just the distinction I wish to avoid. Even if we take a strictly literalist point of view and accept all explanations of behavior and attitudes at face value, we will find that, once elicited, the reasons given for such behavior differ enormously. But that is not the point. I am less concerned with the explanation of response than with its symptoms and structures and reasonable means of describing them. By clearly postulating the contrast between traditional cosmologies, whatever they in general may be, and a modern scientific worldview, whatever that in general may be, the investigator may feel better equipped to deal with the problem of the undermining of theory by experience. But such an approach would be artificial at the very least. A more satisfactory approach would be to take the phen phenomenological course of building into one's theory and presuppositions acknowledgement of the thesis that experience undermines theory. Otherwise, we are likely to sink into a swamp of prioristic and relativist difficulties about the behavior of others, as much as of the self. But this acknowledgement does not, of course, resolve every difficulty. Like Hawthorne's colonists, we may find it easier to describe belief in the power of images in terms of fan fantasy, superstition, and magic. But we know too that such categories are evasive. They seek to be explanatory, but they do not explain enough or anything. Rather, there are telltale signs of our inability to account for the never-ending disruption of natural law that arises from the relations between figured objects and people. That inability is why we invoke them so often. It is not for the most part that the painter is a magician, or even acts like a real magician. It is just that when images are set among us, the dead are kept among the living and inert matter becomes lively, to such an extent that we may even be afraid of it. The role of artistic skill in this process is undeniable. It is most nobly described in Diochrysostom's Olympic Discourse, where Phidias himself explains the artist's role in ensuring that images work effectively, but there is no need to be mystical about that role. By its very nature, the lapse into mysticism defies the possibility of analysis. We understand intuitively the effects Diochrystotum attributed to Phidias's statue of Zeus when he said of it that whoever is sore distressed in soul, having in the course of his life drained the cup of many misfortunes and griefs, not even winning sweet sleep, even this man, I think, if he stood before this image, would forget all the terrors and hardships that fall to our human lot. Such are the redemptive powers we readily grant to art. But there is more to its effect than the release from alienation. Hawthorne described more than just that when he wrote about the painter in the colonies and the beliefs focused on his creations, and so did Alberti, that most sophisticated of all writers about art. At the beginning of the second book of his remarkable compendium, 
of practical and speculative information about painting, the De Pictura of 1435. Thus we move from colony to imperial center, from talk about the responses of those unschooled in imagery to talk about those who are refined and educated in art. But the issues involved are not the province and domain of either group. Painting possesses a truly divine power in that not only does it make the absent present, as they say of friendship, but it also represents the dead to the living many centuries later, so that they are recognized by spectators with pleasure and deep admiration for the artist. Plutarch tells us that Cassandras, one of Alexander's commanders, trembled all over at the sight of a portrait of the deceased Alexander, in which he recognized the majesty of his king. He also tells us how Agesilos, the Lacedaemonian, realizing that he was very ugly, refused to allow his likeness to be known to posterity, and so refused to be painted or modeled by anyone. Through painting, the faces of the dead go on living for a very long time. Painting is also a great gift to men in that it represents the gods we worship, for painting has contributed considerably to the piety which binds us to the gods and to filling our minds with sound religious beliefs. How much painting contributes to the honest pleasures of the mind and to the beauty of things can be seen in a variety of ways, but especially in the fact that you will find nothing so precious which association with painting does not render far more valuable. Ivory, gems, and all other similar precious things are made more valuable by the hand of the painter. Gold, too. Even lead, the basest of metals, if formed into some image by Phidias or Praxiteles, would be regarded as more precious than unworked silver. At least five basic points may be reclaimed from this occasionally repetitious passage. Painting makes the absent present and the dead living. It aids memory and recognition. It can inspire awe. It rouses piety, and it transforms the value of unfigured material, just as sculpture does. Its powers, in short, are such that it can only be described as supernatural and divine. But in what sense divine? Is the claim just an extravagance, a figure of speech that offers a discursive means of coping with the complex powers and effects of images? Through painting, the faces of the dead go on living for a very long time. Go on living, in what sense? This is the heart of the matter. When we speak of the living faces of the dead, are we again just using a figure? Is the fact that in many languages, the same word is used to convey the liveliness of representation and the liveliness of the living being a convenient way of talking imprecisely about a distinction that so resiliently eludes precision? No, for the evidence of the history of images is such that we find that responses are frequently predicated in high circles as well as low, in refined ones and unrefined, 
on the perception of dead images as living and as capable of the extensions and intentionality of beings that breathe. But it is not just a matter of images, at least not for Alberti. Throughout the passage, one conviction remains, even when unspoken. This is the conviction that it is art which transforms inert material and enables the realization of its potential. Alberti is perfectly clear about the strong responses images evoke, and he knows that sometimes these are based on the inevitable fulfillment of their potentiality in the beholding and therefore behaving spectator. Or perhaps in the exchange with the spectator. This realization and fulfillment transcends rationality, and so he fittingly invokes the category of the divine. But there is another level on which he thinks that this applies only to wrought images, and therefore to the skill with which they are made. Sometimes those skills are so transcendent and so far beyond ordinary human capabilities that here too we are to think of the divine, or at the very least, to think that the productions of an artist like Phidias are invested with the divine preternaturally and inexplicably. In one sense, the matter is simple. Agesilas won't have his picture painted because he is too ugly. Here it seems that straightforwardly aesthetic factors are at stake, but then Alberti moves on to more complicated consequences of the formation and transformation of objects in the hands of the painter such as the prolongation of the presence of the already dead, the eliciting and confirmation of piety, and so forth. He cannot explain this, so painting is now said to contribute to the honest, silly set, straightforward, pleasures of the mind, precisely because of its beauty or because of the transforming skills of the artist. These we can easily loud, so that when we do confront that which is discomfitting, we do not have to face the problem of the artist's role in ensuring that as a result of our interchange with his productions, we may be moved to tears or destruction, or to war, or to some expression of our sexuality that embarrasses us. In other words, to behave in ways that have little to do with praise and compliment. These are things we cannot understand, even though in a sense it is always easy to grasp the role of artistic skill in transforming base ore into noble metal, lead into something as valuable as gold, and gold into something even more valuable than its regular market price. In another sense, these powers of the artists are divine because they are vastly superior to our own but it is not in such terms that the matter is especially complicated. The real problem of the divinity of painting arises when pictures manifest their potential. In its very inability to assign art its proper role in this nearly magical and certainly supernatural process, Alberti's passage exemplifies as clearly as one could wish the intricate nexus between the mystical view of the transforming and redemptive virtue of artistic skill, and the perplexity of the task of describing the effects that arise 
from the relations between images and people. We could resolve all this by saying that one issue is that of artistic ability and skill, another that of the mystique of art. Let us provisionally use that term as a temporary replacement for talk of the divine powers of art. In effect, the distinction is never as clear as this, and we would still be left with the second half of the problem. The mistake of art is discovered by considering the commonplaces in which people speak about art and about all imagery. It is discovered by commonplaces and topoi because it is represented by them, and by metaphor and simile as well. We can return to the question of as if. But first we should note this. Despite the fact that Alberti's passage is an example of what Hawthorne would have termed the refined judgment of the amateur, and that Hawthorne himself concentrates on less refined more popular beliefs, the opinion of the crowd. Crowd and amateur share exactly the same judgments about the effects and potential of images. The dead can become alive, people are afraid of pictures, and there is a general, almost mystical awareness of the transcendent complexities of artistic skill. The difference, of course, is that the amateur somehow has more adequate terms and conventions for expressing such notions, which coarser judges lack. This may make the notions seem more rational, but brief reflection makes it clear that they cannot thus be reclaimed. Say it is, it is just a cliché, or a critical commonplace, that through a good painting the faces of the dead go on living and that our particular portrait is so good and skillful that it gives a sense of real speaking and moving presence. But we know from just the kind of context described by Hawthorne to range for the time being no farther than that, that people feel just these things about pictures and respond to them on just those basis. The potential objection that none of this material is hard sociological evidence thus falls away, and we cannot dismiss Alberti on the grounds that what he provides are simply intellectual versions of literary commonplaces about art. To whatever sociological evidence we may have, we must join the subtler kinds of evidence that lie behind the facades of criticism. With Alberti, the refined judgment of the amateur becomes at least as valuable as the opinion of the crowd. It reveals at least as much. Alberti is a sentient human like any other. However clothed in the language of conventional theory and criticism, his insights are the same as the brute and frank reactions of unschooled people. In short, this is the only way in which the schooled and learned come to deal with responses that defy articulation in the critical language to which they have become accustomed. The intellectualizing approach may be to claim that Alberti offers no more than clichés and standard similes, but even if these were indeed no more than conventional topoi, the very fact that they have been repeated so often, at all levels, 
reinforces the inclination already within us to perceive images in this way. When we see the image come alive, when we start at the flesh that bleeds and the eyes that do, after all, follow us around the room, we may think that our responses are culturally conditioned. But we also know that we cannot, by thinking in this way, wholly subvert or repress the psychological processes that lead us to invest images with powers that make them work, with qualities that make them seem lively, with the ability to rouse us to empathy, incite us to action, and provide us with a mode of articulating the recollection that fades. Somewhere on the scale between the apparent rudeness of Hawthorne's New Englanders and Alberti's notional sophistication lies Valerius Maximus, that windy and sententious encyclopedist of the first century AD. His facta et dicta memorabilia, a ragbag collection of moral exempla, remained popular throughout the Middle Ages and well into the 17th century. In it, he includes an exemplary tale of Roman filial piety, which unusually refers to a painting. The tale seems to be made up of a series of the most obvious commonplaces about art. Valerius praises the devotion of Pero in this way. When Pero's father had succumbed to a similar fate, i.e. to the Roman mother previously mentioned by Valerius, and been cast into prison, she took this man in the last years of old age to her breast and nursed him like a baby. People stop in amazement and cannot take their eyes off the scene when they see the picture of it. As they marvel at what is before them, the situation of that event long ago is brought home to them. In these mute figures, they feel they are looking at real and living bodies. This must have its effect on the mind, too, and painting is rather more potent in this than literature, in presenting events of old for the edification of people today. Beside the story, one might consider one of the many paintings of the subject. If one cannot find a modern pictorial parallel, though it no doubt exists, there is at least an earlier one by an artist who knew Valerius at least as well, if not better than any other. Rubens. In the combination of the luscious paint, so characteristic of the artist, the full breasts of the girl and senescent flesh of the old man on the one hand, and the extraordinary story of a daughter giving her father to suck on the other. It is not hard to understand Valerius's claim that people might stop in amazement and be unable to take their eyes off the scene. And there seems little extravagance in the assertion that in those mute figures, people feel they are looking at real and living bodies. Of course, Valerius does not say the figures in the picture are living bodies. People feel they are like living bodies. He is using a simile. As so often, the as-if is fully implied, if not actually articulated. But one cannot thus dismiss the extent and implications of the innumerable instances where responses are based on the perception of bodies as real and not merely as if real, where simile is renounced, 
or even undermined by the need to reconstitute the body. For it is not only a matter of projection or desire. To the observer who strives for detachment, the results of such reconstitution may well seem miraculous or supernatural. But do not the claims of both Alberti and Valerius Maximus for painting apply equally well to sculpture? Is all this talk of the effects of paintings no more than a characteristic critical downgrading of sculpture, alien perhaps to the Greeks, but too much in keeping with Alberti's own argument in favor of painting as the mistress of all the arts and their principal ornament? The issue, however, is not that of the old paragon, of the relative superiority of one art form over another. It is the relationship between cognition and commonplace. In a straightforward, important, and in some ways old-fashioned sense, painting exemplifies one key aspect of response and effect more strikingly than sculpture. It is less hard to grasp why three-dimensional images, particularly if colored, may seem to be living, why we may want to touch them as if they were real. But with painting, depiction is more readily understood as representation. It is irredeemably two-dimensional and thus irredeemably inert. Or so we may think. And yet, paintings also seem real, lively. They too demand us to feel them, or perhaps to think of them as invested with the kind of animation both painter and public may sense in a picture like Mondrian's Broadway Boogie Woogie of 1942-43. All this may sound dangerously close to the kind of thinking that underlay the notions of tangibility notoriously to be found in Bernard Berenson. It may also sound unduly mystical. But Alberti, just like Hawthorne, over 400 years later, assigned painting a special status precisely because its very lack of three-dimensionality made it seem all the more supernatural, or made the beholder construe it as such. Its powers seemed more mysterious and further beyond the capacities of normal creativity, and so, as Alberti immediately went on to insist after the passage quoted above, Painting was honored by our ancestors with a special distinction that whereas all other artists were called craftsmen, the painter alone was not counted among their number. We cannot understand the extraordinary potentiality of painting in terms of natural law. Its, operative, its operativeness can only be construed in mystical terms or in terms of categories that pertain to the supernatural, and it must therefore be of a higher order to that sculpted form which makes reality so plain. For these reasons, we need to have recourse to commonplaces. We have no more scientific ways of speaking of the transcendental qualities of imagery that belies the essence of the material of which it is made. There are indeed rather less pr problematic aspects of the potentialities that have traditionally been assigned to painting. In his short and splendidly compressed passage, 
Valerius Maximus managed to allude to two of them, to the ability of painting to serve as an aid to memory and to its role as an instrument of edification. Common though they are, these two are significant components of response. So is the passing affirmation of the greater effectiveness of painting than literature, which modern scholars will be inclined to light upon as the main theoretical point, as opposed to the moral and didactic one of this exemplum. Perhaps the most paradoxical affirmation of this comparative view of the effectiveness of pictures comes from the trial of Madame Bovary in 1857. Lascivious paintings generally have more influence than dispassionate arguments, says the counsel for the state. This is not the man, says the counsel for defense, pointing to Flaubert, whom the public ministry, with 15 or 20 lines bitten off here and there, has represented before you as a maker of lascivious paintings. Of course, the point is that Flaubert has not presented dispassionate arguments. He has written passionately and sensuously. But what is significant about the extraordinarily sustained resuscitation of the old parallel between painting and poetry throughout the trial is that the only way in which the danger of Flaubert's passages can properly be presented is by describing them as paintings. His writing is dangerous, as the prosecutor says, because it shows lascivious portraits. It is no less than the realistic school of painting. It is indeed the same color, the same power of brushwork, the same vividness of expression. The whole work is bad because it is not a piece of writing, it is a painting. And it is with the final brush stroke that Flaubert depicts that terrible but unacceptable final moment of Madame Bovary when the sheet sagged between her breasts and her knees and then rose again over her toes. The parallel between painting and poetry and the ensuing caution about the danger of that which is represented visually is to be found everywhere in classical literature and is to be aligned with all the writers from Aristotle and Horace onwards who, to this day, have insisted on the deeper effects of pictures than of words. Horace's statement that what the mind takes in through the ears stimulates it less actively than what is presented to it by the eyes, and what the spectator can see and believe for himself, was not, surprisingly, taken up by many later censors of visual representation. Erasmus, for example, repeated Aristotle's view of the need to regulate paintings and sculptures on the grounds that painting is much more eloquent than speech and often penetrates more deeply into one's heart in the course of expressing his own concerns about indecent imagery. Leonardo's claim that the vivid reality of the painter's images lead lovers to discourse with portraits of their beloved, as poetry cannot, is to be seen in the context of his extended treatment of the paragon and the superiority of painting in general. But what Valerius does is to account for the greater potency of images. 
Topos becomes a telling index of belief and behavior, not merely the unthinking repetition of learned or critical commonplace. And so the historian of response marshals literary and critical texts, however conventional, alongside the evidence he or she gathers for the social use and function of images. The texts corroborate and are corroborated by the social and historical particularities of response. The chapters that follow will so often seem to depend on commonplaces. It would be better to say the resonance of commonplaces, but these, as we shall see, turn out to have real and practical consequences. They recur not because of their place in humanist criticism of the arts, but because they embody fundamental responses. Their articulation as topoi is merely a comfortable way of acknowledging them. Furthermore, they have extraordinarily wide ethnographic implications, so much so that we may risk calling them universal. However sophisticated we may be, we cannot wholly relinquish them. They confirm the topoi that we have begun to examine and underlie almost every other category of response that will be exemplified by specific evidence in these pages. In Commonplace and Topos, we discover the meeting point of sophisticated criticism and folk psychology. By examining them, we understand better why. In the case of witchcraft with images, the closely resembling body of the figure should be so effective from a distance, and not just felt to be effective, or why there should be so many accounts of the effectiveness of such images. We will lay bare those elements of response that we dimly recognize in the case of works we call art, but that come dramatically to the fore with functional and popular categories outside that convenient pale. We dimly recognize them, or suppress them, or sublimate them. We talk about them in terms of the topos and the commonplace, but we will not acknowledge that they are the same as those which we also conveniently describe as magical or superstitious. There are some things which we now find very easy to dismiss. The statue that moves, or the eyes that follow one around the room, for example. Critics will have no truck with such judgments. But from ethnography, we know repeated instances of the contagiousness of the gaze, and we will see in chapter 5 how it is precisely because of the power of the sculpture's or picture's gaze that the last stage of making an image and the first stage of making it operative is, over and over again, the painting in of the eyes. Still later in this book, I refer to some of the other processes which are allied with the painting or opening of the eyes. For example, where images are treated as living or about to live, from providing them with food to eat, as above all with funeral effigies, to speaking to them and expecting them to speak in return. The speaking image is, of course, one of the commonest low-level components in the assessment of the aesthetic success of both paintings and sculptures, just as in the case of the eyes that, as if alive, turn to the beholder wherever he stands.
Let us briefly recall the use of this last idea as a profound metaphor for the all-seeing eye of God by the great 15th century theologian Nicholas of Cusa. The preface to his treatise Divisione Dei opens with an avowal of the need for a suitable similitude, and he refers to those pictures which seem to look at all around them. Amongst these are many excellently painted ones, including the archeress at Nuremberg, the most precious picture by the great painter Roger in the town hall at Brussels, the picture in my Veronica chapel at Koblenz, the angel with the arms of the church in the castle at Brixen, and many others elsewhere. Now, in case you lack a practical example, I am sending you, dear brothers, the picture which I have been able to get. It shows the all-seeing. I call it an icon of God. This picture you should put up in some place, say the north wall, and you, brothers, should stand around it at equal distances from it. Look at it, and each of you will experience that from whatever side you look. It will seem to look at you alone. To the brother who stands in the east, it will seem to look eastward, to him in the south, southward, and to him in the west, westward. Therefore, at first, you will be all amazed at how it gazes at all in each of you. For the imagination of him who stands in the east cannot at all grasp how the gaze of the icon should be turned in another direction, namely west or south. So the brother who was in the east should place himself in the west and experience the gaze of the icon fixed on him in the west, just as formerly it was in the east. And because he knows the icon is fixed, he will wonder at the change of the unchangeable gaze. And even if he keeps his own gaze on the image and then walks from east to west, he will discover that the gaze of the icon goes continuously with him and still does not leave him. And so, with extraordinary meticulousness, Nicholas of Cusa goes on to discuss the apparent omnivoyance of the picture. I thought I saw the pupils move said the Sri Lankan villager of the statue of the Virgin outside St. James Church in Mutual. I was not imagining. I was trying to see. It's difficult to gauge a thing like that. A local merchant was confident, despite the skepticism of others. I saw it, he said. I saw the eye wink. Which eye? Because I am a cataract patient, I saw only the left eye moving. But my grandchildren, they saw both eyes moving. Everyone has heard of such things. On the one hand, then, the practical consequences of belief in the context of a low-level object. On the other, with Nicholas of Cusa, responds to the work of art as a metaphor, but one which is wholly rooted in experience. The artistic creation, as we shall see, can become threateningly threateningly more than just metaphor for the powers and transcendental capabilities of the divine. But the present interest of Nicholas's passage lies, once again, 
in the way in which what may seem to be both everyday and highly conventionalized judgment endows the illustration with its full and inescapable force. We cannot dismiss such judgments as merely the topoi of low-level criticism of art. Apart from their phenomenological resonance, they are so deeply ingrained that they are swiftly transformed from the level of conventional criticism or popular reaction to expectation of and belief in the very phenomena they may seem to imply. For the higher criticism to stand back from those aspects of behavior, belief, and response about which more ordinary people are candid, is to deny the truths upon which cliché, topo, and metaphor are founded.